I don't know about you, but I, I hear that song, it just, just stirs something right here that says, wow, the mercy of God is a great, great gift. And some of you can sing that with full authority and great confidence. You can say, yeah, all, all, of, my, all of my wrongdoing has been erased. All of my crimes against God, they, they have been buried. And that, that's the joy and the confidence that I bring into this day and all my days to come. There are others of us who say, I can't say that yet. Like, my, my yesterdays don't feel like all that long ago. And for, in fact, for some of us, our yesterday feels like, like it's right now. For some of us, the, the cloud of regret from the sins of our yesterdays follows us very closely behind. And some of us feel like it just, just kind of stuck, hovering over us, casting a shadow of shame everywhere we go. And I want to remind you that the, the hope that we have is because Jesus Christ willingly embraced an execution he did not deserve because his blood was shed. That's what that, so you're, you're kind of new to this whole church thing, that whole phrase, I've been washed in the blood, that can sound strange and weird. What we mean when we say that is that the shed blood of Jesus Christ covers over everything that we have ever thought, done, said, or imagined that was counter to God's best intent for our lives. And if you're someone today who you, you feel haunted by the ghosts of your past, you feel like you're still dragging those shackles behind you, I want, I want to just give you a quiet moment to respond to God right now. And say, Lord, if any of that is true, I need to be forgiven. I want to be set free. So I just want to give you a, just a moment to, to whisper that to God, and I'm going to pray over us. Father God, I thank you that the mercy of Jesus Christ is unchallenged, unchanging, and unflinching. I thank you that your forgiveness is immediate. It is complete. And its only condition is that we ask for it. Lord, your word says that when we have an honest conversation with you and we ask you to make us right, it says that our sins are buried under a blanket of pure, driven snow. Your word says that our, our crimes against you, against others, against our very selves, they're thrown into the deepest sea. It says that when we're forgiven by you, you, you separate our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, which which is infinitely separated from us. God, your word says that when we acknowledge our need for you, that you forgive us and you wash us clean. You reset the deck. You allow us to have a right relationship with you. You give us the opportunity to be rightly restored with the people around us. You allowed us to be, to be reconciled with the version of ourselves that you call righteous. So Lord, I just pray that you would push whatever cloud, whatever ghosts, whatever shadows hang over us and that you would, you would blow them away with the gentle breeze of your mercy. 
and you would let every single one of us know that our only hope, our beautiful and steadfast hope can be found in you, our crucified and risen Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Would you give a hand to our team? Thank you so much for giving of yourself to us, you guys. Wow. Well, let me ask you this question. When was the last time that you felt truly foolish? Don't, don't raise your hands. I'm not going to make you say it out loud. I, I, I can point to a couple episodes of my own life. One was my very first day of middle school. I was terrified. Like, how many of you know that the height difference between the tallest eighth grader and the smallest sixth grader is like three feet easily? Like, there's, there's a significant gap uh, between eighth graders and sixth graders. And I, I only lived around the corner from my middle school. I thought I had this whole thing, like, on lock. I thought it was going to be golden. And I, as a sixth grader, I went to the eighth grade door, and they mocked me mercilessly. They're like, get out of here. You don't belong here. And I felt, I felt small, like smaller than I already was. And I felt stupid. I felt foolish. Now, fast forward to a couple years later, I was in high school, and somebody told me it was a good idea for college to sign up for advanced placement calculus. I'm not a math guy. I got about 14 minutes into that class, I said, somebody has made a horrible decision. I got to get out of here. I have no idea what's going on. Same thing happened at grad school. I remember my first day at grad school, some guys talking in a British accent about words like soteriology and pneumatology and some German theologian called Schleiermacher, and everybody else is kind of nodding and taking notes. I was like, I think I'm in the wrong place. Or how about when I met my wife before I started dating her, and she and her friends dared me to go out karaokeing with them, and I thought it would be a good idea to stand up in front of a crowd of strangers and sing Journeys Don't Stop Believing. Halfway through the first verse, I'm like, I, I, I should not be here. You know what the best part about being a parent of adolescence is? You finally get to a stage in your life where you can make somebody else look silly. I have tried to discipline my sixth grade daughter. I'm like, you're grounded. You got a timeout. I'm taking away your phone. Nothing. And then I say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show off my dance moves to your friends. She's like, whatever you need, I will do. <laughs> I'm such a bad dancer. It stresses out my dog. No lie. I will dance in our kitchen and he will start to cry like somebody is pulling out his nails. Sometimes we feel foolish. Sometimes we make other people feel foolish. There are times in our lives, though, where our faith causes other people to make us think that we might be foolish. For me, when I was in high school, I went to, went to a public high school, and I remember two different teachers, both my biology teacher and my physics teacher, but ridicule what I believed. One, one did it generically. The other one did it very specifically in front of a packed classroom. And I had this moment of doubt to say, like, am I, am I crazy for believing that there was a historical Jesus who was fully God, fully man, who really did die on the cross, that was a historic event, and who actually rose from the tomb? Did, did all that happen? And if it did happen, does that, does that make me a fool? We did, our, we did our marketing for our services last week, and on one of the lines was fake news that said, Easter's fools. And one of you very graciously and humbly reached out to us and said, I, f I feel like you, are, you as a church are saying that if I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, I'm, I'm a fool. And I said, I'm, I'm not saying that at all, but there are thousands, millions of people around this world who would say, if that's what you believe, you're a, you are a fool. And one of the first followers of Jesus Christ, a guy by the name of Paul, some, some people know him now by St. Paul or Apostle Paul, wrote this in a letter to a group of people living in ancient Corinth who were trying to follow Jesus best they knew how. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. For the message of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent, intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. I remember I had a friend who was helping me kind of understand and embrace my faith when I was in my early 20s, and he was like very gifted intellectually. And he would say, Steve, there are people who are going to tell you that if you, don't, if you don't put all of your confidence, all of your faith into earthly wisdom, you, you don't know which way is up. There's, there's a rumor going around out there that the wisdom of this world is the only wisdom that counts. But the Apostle Paul says that, that's not true. That's, that's fake news. The world says a cross-centered message, that, that's foolishness. But we believe the good news says that a cross-centered message is the power of God. Now consider for a moment that you're somebody who's hearing the message of Jesus Christ for the very first time. And you live in first century Athens or first century Ephesus or first century Jerusalem. And, and some guy comes and telling you, hey, there's this man named Jesus. We believe that he was God in the flesh. We also believe that he died on a cross and he rose again. Many people are going to choke on that very second line. He died on a cross. Why is the cross foolishness? Because the cross is a symbol of shame. The cross is a declaration of of death. The cross is an embarrassment to anybody who is on it or associated with it. We don't like the idea of a cross because our instinct for survival is rooted in our own self-preservation. Our base instinct is to avoid the cross. It is a threat to our safety, our security, our identity. Jesus, however, reminds us that the cross is not a declaration of death. Instead, it's a proclamation of victory. My friend Abdu Murray says that so many people fail to realize this beauty of the cross. It's that in the cross, so many of the loose ends about our human questions are tied together and reconciled. He says, in the cross, our longing for justice is satisfied. In the cross, our experience with sorrow is validated. And in the cross, our yearning for love is met because our longing for justice is satisfied. We, we see throughout American history a deep burn to see wrongs committed against other people stopped and rectified. Back on the east side, we had a museum that we used to go to, and in it there was this exhibit called With Liberty and Justice for All. And they traced the history of advocate, advocacy throughout, and activism throughout American history. And they talked about the advocacy for a woman's right to vote. And they talked about the end of slavery and abolitionism and talking about all the kind of shifts even now that we're seeing. About a new generation making a new cry to see racial reconciliation and justice defined. And whether, regardless of what your opinions are, this whole opinion on gun violence is dominating the national conversation. Why? Because people are saying innocent people should not have to be gunned down anymore. And so we have this, with this, this burn, this breaking of hearts, this kind of, this rent, this tearing of robes of frustration that say these things should not be. And Abdu says the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that there is plenty that is wrong with humanity and there is much that is broken in the world and it has not gone unnoticed by God. And the brutality of the cross acknowledges that God says injustice must be accounted for and the justice of the kingdom must be proclaimed. That's, that's the beauty that we have in the cross. It says also the cross acknowledges, it validates our experience with sorrow. 
So many of us, we have a hard time reconciling our belief in a God who makes all things new with, with the tragedy and the heartbreak that many of us are experiencing on a daily basis, whether it's a broken relationship or the loss of a loved one or, or the death of a dream. Abdu says the beauty of the cross, the majesty of the cross, is it reminds us that because God himself suffered, he is no stranger to our suffering. That God can identify with every sliver of heartache. And then finally, he says that the cross is this just bold declaration of God's love. So many of us, we stumble through this life asking this question, does anybody even know that I'm here? Does anybody know my name? Does anybody care about my struggles? And we believe that God's love is what drove Jesus to the cross, and that as he hung on those splintery beams— our faces were on his mind and our names were on his lips. And if you ever have any question about whether you are loved by God or not, the answer in the cross is a thousand times yes. See, in first century, people would say, why, why, would, I, why would I embrace something like the cross? The cross was an instrument of death and execution. For them, embracing the cross would be as strange as you and I saying like, you know what, I'd like to take a picture of the electric chair and turn it into a piece of jewelry and wear that around everywhere I go. That's weird. It's a little morbid. It's strange. That's as odd as the cross would have been to the people who are hearing it for the very first time. So the world says a cross-centered message is foolishness. But if we understand what the cross is and what it means, the cross-centered message is in fact the power of God. Paul goes on to say this in verse 20. He says, where is the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The world says a crucified Christ is foolish. But the good news is Christ is both power and wisdom. A crucified Christ is both power and wisdom. I remember I had a friend who told me, he goes, Steve, there are a lot of people who will tell you that faith is a crutch. That accomplished people, intelligent people, significant people, they, they don't need something outside of themselves. They don't need a fairy tale to believe in to give their lives significance. And he, he told me, he goes, I used to spend years of my life saying, no, faith isn't a crush. I can believe what I believe, and I can be on an equal par with you. And finally, he goes, I stopped making that argument. He goes, you know what? You're right. It is a crutch. People who are broken acknowledge their need for God. And he goes, I can't walk without him. If you think you can't, knock yourself out. But I can't. I thought that was a beautiful way to spin it because Ed was saying, there's no shame in me acknowledging that without Jesus, I cannot function as a human being. And I do, in fact, need him. He is both power and he is wisdom. Look at all the major world religions. Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. None of them require an incarnation. None of them demand a crucifixion. Paul says that the cross of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block to Jews. Why? Because one of the verses in the Old Testament says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
So the cross runs counter to their picture of Messiah. The image of the cross is one they kept choking on because they could not reconcile a cursed crucifixion victim and a blessed Messiah. They just couldn't, there was a paradox they could never kind of seem to work through. And then he said it was foolishness to the Greeks or to the Gentiles. The Gentiles or the pagans only trafficked in powerful deities. They worshiped God who could bring rain, who could grant wishes, who could defeat enemies. A cross, that, a cross symbolized a God who was weak. That wasn't something that they wanted to believe in. So many people who initially heard this message of a crucified Jesus said, like, yeah, knock yourself out. You can have that God. I, I, want, I want a better one. But here's what I'm realizing. Paul says in this passage, he goes, that if God is not drawing you, if God is not calling you, you cannot see God as he is. Your vision of God will always be warped. Your, your visual spiritual filter is a little bit twisted. Now, I'm slightly colorblind. I cannot distinguish all reds from all greens. There was about four years in our marriage where I kept asking Kelly, have you seen my brown pants? She had no idea what I was talking about because, in fact, they were olive and I didn't know it. <laughs> I didn't know it until my ophthalmologist told me so. The problem is that many of us keep trying to use human arguments to convince skeptics of a spiritual reality. But Paul says, to those whom God has called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now, sometimes we think that when people reject our message of the cross of Jesus Christ, they are rejecting us. I don't think that's always true. If your message is right, but your tone is wrong, people might be rejecting your tone and not your message. I had an acquaintance who likes to say, I have lost all sorts of friendships because of my beliefs. And I said, no, you've lost all sorts of friendships because you're obnoxious. <laughs> People are not choking on your argument, they're choking on your presentation. And if you come across like a jerk, they reject a jerk, and the message that the jerk delivered, even if the message is right and true and life-giving and good. But if your tone is gentle, but firm, and your message is right, and people reject it, you don't have to take that personally. Jesus told his disciples, if your message is rejected in a particular town, as you leave that town, take off your sandals and shake the very dust off of your feet. I, I used to think that this, it was this, this expression of rage that Jesus' angry, rejected disciples would be standing on the very edge of the city limits, banging their sandals together, glaring at the people who are standing there and saying, y'all can go to hell. We did our job. Blood's on your own head now. I don't, I don't think that's what they meant. I thought that what, I think that what was actually happening is that they're just, they're gently clapping their sandals together saying, our obligation to present truth to this community has been fulfilled. And when we walk away, we can walk away with a clean conscience. And I wonder, I wonder if some spiritually curious people who did not have the courage to embrace the faith in public quietly followed them out to the edge of town and maybe caught them on their way to the next town and say, I was afraid to believe in public, but I've got questions in private. Will you, will you help me? And I think that sometimes we get conned into thinking that if we're not brash and mean-spirited and inflexible and arrogant, then then we did it wrong. But I believe that Jesus says the truth stands on its own. I can present it without apology. And if people reject it, they're not rejecting me. They're rejecting the gift that I try to give in the name of Jesus. Now, 
Paul continues his argument in verse 26. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Fake news is that a weak person is foolish. The good news is that God chooses lowly people for his purposes over and over and over again. Now here's what I want you to catch. The beginning of that passage, he says, think of where you were when you were called. Not many were wise, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. Paul is implying is that you weren't that when you were called, but you are that now. So Paul isn't saying that there's anything wrong with being wise, influential, or noble. He said, just remember that you became wise, noble, and influential by the mercy and the grace of God. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is when King David, who is kind of nearing the end of the, his life, looks back at all of his accomplishments and he says, God, everything good that I have done, I have not accomplished in my own human strength. I've accomplished under the umbrella under, under kind of the anointing and the leadership of your spirit. He's like, my, my bow, my sword, my spear did not win all of these battles. You won these battles with me and in me and through me. And I think that wise people, kingdom people, they, they can achieve great heights in athletics, in politics, in industry, and in business, and in education. And they, but, but humble people say, yeah, I've done all these things, but I don't find my worth and my identity in these things. I leverage them as a platform to be a gift and a blessing to the world. And I use my unique position here to be a gift to others. And so some, some of us say, man, I, I feel like I've done a lot, but I don't know that I'm getting anywhere. Maybe it's important for us to be able to say, God, what would you want to do through me? How do you want to use my talents? How do you want to use my gifts? How do you want to use my education? How do you want to use my business for your purposes and your glory in my lifetime? Because the wisdom of the world says you get whatever you can for you. And you hold on to it. I remember one of my mentors, she's a brilliant guy academically, and he got his doctorate at Oxford. And I think that when you kind of get to the pinnacle of like smart people land, Oxford probably is at the, the top of that pyramid. And he said that he was working on his PhD and there was a peer in his group and they would study in the library at the same time. And his friend although he had not yet earned his degree, had the words Dr. So-and-so written on a piece of paper above where he was studying. My friend Mark turned to him and he goes, really? He goes, is, is that all it's about for you? Is the title and the prestige? And I love that his friend was honest enough to look him dead in the eye and go, yes. That's exactly what it was about. And Mark just walked away shaking his head saying, I am afraid that your dream for your life is too small. I'm so grateful that God has led Mark to go on to be one of the, the president of a leading evangelical institution that trains 
people who are doctors of philosophy and doctors of theology. Why? Because God has uniquely positioned him to be able to say, you can get to the top and never have it be enough. Let's be people who are wise. Let's be people who are influential. Let's be people who are of noble birth. But let's do that not for our own glory or our own credit. Let's reach those heights by the grace of God and then use those positions to influence others. And what I love is that when people of the kingdom, people who have nothing to lose, nothing to prove, people have nothing to hide, when they get to positions of influence, they can lead differently because they're leading out of the weakness of the cross, not out of the strength of the world. Just this last week, I was reading an article about leadership in Harvard Business Review, and they say bosses who get angry and yell at employees, the one thing that distinguishes successful ones and, and unsuccessful ones is that people who get angry, and any of you who have been in business and you're working on a big deal, you're racing against a deadline, you know that tempers can flare and things can get heated. He goes, bosses who circle back around and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, Will you help me learn from this so I can be better next time? Those are people who build bridges with their employees. Those are people who endear themselves to teams. Those are people who are able to take business units on a long, successful run. But many of us, we came from a school of management or a school of leadership that says, never let anybody see you flinch, never apologize in private, and certainly don't apologize in public. That's, that's foolishness. That, that's, just, that's just putting a target on your back. That's exposing yourself to criticism and setbacks. But those of us who are learning what it is to walk with Jesus, and some of the most mature people that I've known have said, oh, you know what? I'm so confident in who I am in Jesus. I'm so grateful for what the cross has done through me. I don't have to be threatened by other people's success. I don't have to be intimidated by their feedback. I can say, I'm sorry. I can say, please help me. I can say, will you advise me? I can share the spotlight with other people. Even though the world seems that, views that as weak, I'm so secure in who I am in, in Jesus. That's where my strength comes from. I can do things that are perceived as weak and insignificant by others. See, the truth is you will only ever lead to the edge of your insecurities. And as you grow in Jesus, your insecurities will diminish because you stop living your life with something to prove. And those of you who are getting ready to wind up high school and begin your college journey, I wish that somebody had told me this when I was 17, 18 years old. Because I wasted whole chunks of my life trying to be somebody that I wasn't so that I could win the validation and the approval of others. And God said, Steve, just be who you are. Yes, strive for excellence. Yes, give your best shot every time around. Yes, invest yourself in, in a life that is successful and achieving, but don't need the results of that to tell you who you are. There are so many of us who are at a crossroads right now where we're having to decide what wisdom we're going to choose, whether it's going to be the wisdom of society at large or whether it's going to be the wisdom of the cross and the gospel and the kingdom. And the good news there says, God chooses the lowly for his purposes. And some of us might not appear lowly, but there was a time where we felt lowly. And there are some of you who feel lowly now, and you're filled with self-doubt. You're racked with uncertainty. You go, I don't know if I've ever achieved anything. I feel like I've been a constant disappointment. Everywhere that I've gone, do I have anything of value to offer the work of God? And the answer is yes. Why? Because Paul reminds us that God chose the foolish to shame the wise. God chose the weak to shame the strong. God chooses the things that are not to nullify the things that are. 
God chose you, God chose me, God chose all of us in our state of weakness so that our confidence would not be in our own human strength and our own capabilities, but our confidence would only ever be in the Christ crucified. Christ risen, Christ glorified. So, but I would love for you to ask that question. Am I willing to embrace the weakness of God? Or is my, have I still put all of my chips into the strength of the world? Am I willing to embrace the foolishness of the cross? Or am I still chasing the wisdom of the world? Who, who am I going to be? What will I value and what will define me? Because how you answer these questions influences your relationships, your spiritual journey, your understanding of your own character, and your spiritual development. And my prayer for us is that we would be people who say, you know what, we're not afraid. We're not afraid of our weaknesses because it's in our weaknesses that we are made strong. It's us being honest about our weaknesses before God and others that give other people permission to be able to say, I, I need help too. I don't, have to, I don't have to be perfect to be a part of this Jesus conversation. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to have all of my ducks in a row. I don't have to have all my nails completely clean to step into a place like Central and determine what the next step is on my spiritual journey. And the Apostle Paul said, he goes, my ability to embrace my weakness is what makes me spiritually strong. And his invitation is that we would join him. Let's go ahead and sing this song together, believing that God wants to work through the parts of our lives that we struggle with to remind us and anybody who's watching that he's still strong.